Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. My guest is Vanessa Badham, or Van Badham, Australian writer and activist, playwright, novelist, regular columnist for The Guardian Australia, critic, trade unionist, feminist, so many ists in there, and one of Australia's most controversial social commentators. She has a weekly podcast that's just on hold at the moment, the week on Wednesday, but it will be back. She's written QAnon and on and is here to talk about what she's up to now at Sydney Theatre Company. Welcome the most erudite Van Batham. Bye, hello. How lovely yeah. to be back on the show. Oh, so lovely to have you again with your foot back into the theatre. Um, A Fall in Love opens this week. Uh, it's an adaptation of the Spanish writer Lope de Vega's La Dama Boban. From the 15 and 1600s now, he's written heaps and heaps of thousands of plays why him and why this play adaptation for you? Oh, Who is I love yeah. Lope de Vega. So a lot of people refer to Lope de Vega as the Spanish Shakespeare. And more correctly, I think Shakespeare is the English Lope de Vega. So <laughs> Lope de Vega is a 16th, 17th century playwright, La Dama Boba, which is the play that I've, I've adapted is from 1613. He was an extraordinary man. He was quite the character uh, lead of personal life of, of some complexity, I believe is the polite term, uh, was in trouble with the law, was involved in you know, various sort of uh, escapades um, mm. that brought him to the attention of authorities from time to time. But he was a prolific playwright. And mm. during his life, he claimed to have written 1,100 plays. This is believable because more than 400 of them have survived. And if you're a Spanish speaker, like he is as much part of your canon as... Shakespeare is to the English mm. language. But what his great legacy for the theatre was was that Lope de Vega took the form of the Commedia dell'arte, which is the traditional Italian-style stock theatre where you have your mm. stock characters and, you know, essentially became like an improv theatre where the theatre company would sort of pick some kind of plot or conceit and the actors knew these sort of character types so well that they'd play them out. He took mm. that sort of framework of very much open access general public peasant theatre and use the developing techniques of the restoration stage to really hone that particular structure and to create a much more advanced and complex drama. So he used techniques like having much larger time jumps than were typically associated with these commedia dell'arte, which usually play out in the in the sort of Aristotelian model. Yeah of plays taking place and the, the same players over the same period of time and the rest of it and and used various techniques to really amp up the funny. And in many ways, he's a, he's a progenitor of fast comedy in France. Like he had this massive continental influence, obviously because his work is in Spanish. There are extraordinary productions of his work all over the world in uh, post-colonial Spanish-speaking communities, you know, the, the, and they're texts that have the same function that Shakespeare does in a modern theatrical sense, that you can take this old play and bring a new insight to it. Mm. And obviously because I'm not writing in Spanish, a language I cannot speak, <laughs> I'm adapting from various translations of La Dama Boba 
and the the leeway given by translation means that I can take the structure and I can take the the form and the sort of broad story, but really make it a contemporary Australian story. So after I think we've done twenty three drafts of the play, twenty three I think we're up to because it's comedy and comedy's hard. Uh, it, there's a the structure of the Labor de Vega is there, but the the story has become my own and the characters have evolved, obviously with the participation of all the wonderful um, actors and directors and dramaturgs have come in and out of the room since we've been developing it and looking at what is funny and what makes something funny and having conversations about how to sort of carry the, the points I'm making. And it's been a really exciting experience because Lope de Vega is my hero. Oh. Uh, and I've been telling the story when, when people say, oh, why would you pick a 17th century yeah. Spanish play? Well, <laughs> I had this sort of life-changing experience when I was in London in 2010. And in 2010, the government had changed in England. Where I'd, I mean, I'd been in England for 10 years and my career as a playwright had been going quite well, slowly, but quite well. And then the Conservative government got elected and all of the opportunities I'd had at the BBC and had other education at various drama schools just disappeared overnight because everything was cut and it was a bleak, bleak winter. And that year there was also uncommonly heavy snowfall in Britain and I had to get a job behind a bar. I was working at a theatre company, but if you wanted to get paid, you had to do mm. bar hours and mm. it wasn't. It wasn't a glamour salary, let me tell you, and there were nights that I would be stuck cleaning up after patrons until 2 o'clock in the morning and rather than walk home through the snow only to get up in the morning and walk all the way back to work through the snow again at 7 o'clock in the morning, I would just sleep in the wine cellar. And I was really just thinking I'm 12,000 miles from home, it's freezing cold, I work in a bar, which is the thing I always said I would never do in London. Mm. You know, I work for this fantastic theatre company but... I don't know when the opportunities are going to like having all of those sort of am I in the right place, what am I doing mm. kind of conversations. And I was really down in the dumps. I was also in a terrible relationship with a narcissist, which was not helping because we were living in a bedsit apartment, which is all we could afford. Like it was really bare bones, eating beans kind of days. And I had this wonderful friend called Mike Holt, who is a very successful podcaster now, and he was working at the BBC and they had been given an allocation of tickets to see a Lope de Vega uh, adaptation of Madness and Valencia, which is one of his shows, at the Trafalgar Studios. And he asked me if I wanted this spare ticket that he had. And he thought it would cheer me up. It was supposed to be really funny. And it had an actor who'd been on EastEnders for years in it. And I was just so grateful for this act of kindness. It should be funny. We'll have a laugh. Um, that I went and for two and a half magnificent hours I was just out of my own head mm. I was just laughing at this ridiculously funny 400 year old play <laughs> that these actors were just having joy in performing there's a scene where everybody pretends to be a horse it's sort of difficult to explain how they get there but it is hilarious and I came out of the theater like a new person like I just I just mm. suddenly thought that everything would be okay and the snow didn't matter and the cold didn't matter and, you know, my lack of money, my terrible relationship, my awful flat and all these things, they just didn't matter because I had had that experience. And when, so the last time I worked with the STC was in 2019 when I did Banging Denmark, which was very happily a hit, and mm. the STC said that they were interested in working with me again and they wanted me to write more comedy and what was I interested in? And I pitched a bunch of Lope de Vega and they really latched onto sort of my concept for the adaptation of La Dama Boba, which became 
a fool in love. And my pitch was like, we've all been having a really hard time with COVID. So I got the commission when COVID had started and the lockdowns were happening. And I was like, I just think when we come out of this, we're all really going to need a laugh. We're going to need a laugh like we'd never need a laugh before. And, of course, since that time and the lockdowns just dragged on and on and on Mm. and we did one little workshop in one of those sort of, you know, holiday periods between lockdowns up in Sydney where none of us were allowed to hug and we all had to sit at a distance to read the script and it was all, it was, you know, it was sort of appropriate, the idea that trying to make a comedy in these terrible sort of circumstances. And since that time, I mean, I've been through some hell in my personal life. My mother was diagnosed with cancer during the lockdowns. Mm. I came up to Sydney to care for her. I didn't get to see my partner for six months because my mother was dying and I couldn't leave her and he couldn't get across the border and the whole thing. And, you know, and I've been grieving her. And I've really appreciated just the power of comedy in yeah, as a social experience, you know, the idea that that you can have those hours where everything's okay and the problems of the world get resolved and the the bad are punished and the good go free and, you know, that this wonderful sort of universal theme of, you know, people falling in love and making adult mistakes and horror and tragedy and those things being something that's happening in another place to just these crazy human dramas that we create of our own vanity or stupidity or foolishness or willfulness or stubbornness. And I've just been so grateful for the experience to just be funny, like just (laughs) to work on the jokes and set up some pratfalls Mm. and some silly like physical comedy and work with that sort of gestural system of just making people laugh has really saved me actually. Mm. Like it saved me from what could have otherwise been just the worst time mm. of my life, grieving mm. my mum. You said that he used to write it in this way where he would get actors in there and have these sort of stereotypes, for want of a better word, I remember what you said, but it sounds like now taking these adaptations in a way is working in the same sort of form with his work to a, a current time and are we in our time now and you also said to work out on the stage what is funny and what is funny did you work it out what is funny (laughs) oh you know I am I am truly blessed with the company Mm. I mean working with the SDC is just a dream because you know I grew up in Sydney and I was 11 years old when I went to my very first play yeah which was Nicaragua ABC at Belvoir which was written by (sighs) Robin Archer and it changed my life and I just went I need to be part of this this is magical these incredible transformations Mm. and then as I got older and was at high school my high school had various packages you could come and see education shows at the STC and I would walk down the hallway at the wharf looking at all those posters on the wall of all the plays and the production photos and I was like one day one day this will be me one day I will make it and that will be my poster and my show and and the idea that that has happened to me twice now is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and obviously because I have such a long history with the company, working with them, being in the audience, being a child, being an adult, you know, leaving for London, coming back, looking at Australian theatre anew, devoting a lot of my, you know, academic study and dramaturgy to Australian playwrights, conventions of the Australian theatre. Like I, I, I really... I am quite well match-made with what happens in that building and they match-made my relationship with 
Kenneth Marilida, who's the director of the show, who's hilarious. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is just, he's one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And to have someone who is funny directing this funny show has just mm-hmm. been a gift. And the seven actors I've got are extraordinary. And I'm not going to single any of them out for praise because if you praise one, you've got to praise the other six because they are so good and just some of the best comic performers on the Australian stage. And that just being in that room with that sort of facilitation means that things become apparent. You know, you test jokes constantly. Mm. It's interesting in the context of uh, Importance of Being Earnest was on at the STC last year yes. and they asked me to write the program note, which was a gift because it meant that I had to go back to the play and sort of put it into context and think about my thoughts because Importance of Being Earnest I think is probably my favourite play by some ah. distance. And wild redrafted every single line in that show like the the first draft and the final draft the performance draft are completely different the structure is there the characters are there but every single gag went through its paces and the sort of precision and and craft is really what's necessary with comedy and you know you throw a hundred gags at the wall and one sticks. It's a treasure day kind of thing. Mm. But the tradition in the theatre is always to adapt what's come before. You know, there's that big cliche that Shakespeare never made up any of his own stories. Well, technically nobody makes up any of their own stories. (laughs) You know, there are narratologists who will tell you there are only nine stories you can ever possibly tell. And certainly part of the reward of being in the theatre is referencing what's come before and you know, and speaking to that theatrical knowledge that you pick up as a as a theatre maker and as a theatre audience, you know, this wonderful shared body of reference with the with the homages and the and the um, signatures and and just the details and being able to retell those and represent them and recontextualize them and and give another perspective on something that has been so so precious and so familiar is one of the great joys of doing this kind of work. Mm. Well, it's funny, that, not funny, but um, that you mentioned the, the importance of being earnest because I was, as I was reading about this, it just did, you know, speak to me similarly in the kind of look at, I guess, class and um, are there are there similarities within it? Where are we? What, you know, is it today? Is it the 1700s when it was written? Are we, you know, what's going on in this? Um, is it love? Well, in my adaptation, uh, <laughs> I have kept the name of the town from the Lope de Vega, which is Aleskus. Uh-huh. But Aleskus is somewhere between <laughs> the the north northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, I think, okay. politely. Okay. A, a town, perhaps, a creature of my imagination, that's populated <laughs> by quite wealthy individuals who per, perhaps prefer an enclave kind of <laughs> lifestyle uh, to display their conspicuous wealth. And what the the setup that I've kept from Lefe de Vega is mm. that there are two sisters. Mm. Um, they are both beautiful. That is beyond question. One is highly intelligent but has no money, and the other one is set to inherit a fortune but doesn't really have any brains. So they are sisters of different interest, I believe is the term. One <laughs> being a poet, and the other one being interested more in being by the pool. Uh-huh. And because the the poolside sister is set to inherit this massive fortune, a number of aspirational young men in various guises turn up to court her to get their hands on the money and the status and the wealth and you know, the various different kind of privileges associated with that 
with that matchup, which turns out to be a bit more difficult than anybody envisaged. And of course, the reason for using this kind of setup is to is to really do what I like doing, which is one, reminding people Australia has a class system, mm-hmm. and to poke fun at it and to satirize this strange sort of competition of status that Australians get caught up in and these sort of materialistic attachments that are made or these opportunistic sort of social pursuits, the way that we evaluate um, wealth, class and status, which are, of course, very different things. And in Australia, which is a country of new money, it's um, quite liberating to look at just the way that the transactions of power with those um, attributes work so dynamically you know you can raise a fortune in one generation and lose it in the next in this country in the Mm. way that it's a bit more difficult to dislodge an aristocracy in a european country or the vast unearned wealth of american imperialists so it, it it is a satire of those kind of aspirational and materialistic values that are very apparent in Sydney mm. and always from, it was interesting that I was writing this play when the lockdowns were on and because my mother was sick I relocated from my home in regional Victoria back to Sydney back to the burbs and my mother's suburb which was once full of war service homes and fibro and you know mm. hard scrabble backyards and working class battlers is now gentrified almost beyond all recognition and being with my mum who's still was living in, you know, the past of this area and the old mm. neighbourhood and then literally walking out the door and seeing the McMansions and, you know, the Lexuses and the, the conspicuous displays of wealth was really interesting. Like I think it's a very live wire topic in Sydney, you know, that mm. that notion of aspirationalism and, and what that means. And also the notion of class, I think, in Australia is very complex for people. I have never stopped thinking of myself as a working-class person, mm. even though I'm a columnist for The Guardian, which is mm. literally the most middle-class job in the whole world, yeah. you know, but because of my accent and because I was educated at state school and because I went to the University of Wollongong and because my parents never had any money when I was growing up and all of those mm. things, I mean, I still I have class adventures all the time. Like I do these, you know, like middle-class gigs, on TV, in the media, at conferences, speaking. And my husband refers to it because he's seen it so many times as the waitress in the wrong room syndrome where I would (laughs) walk into a place and sort of go, oh, yeah, you know, is this whatever. And because of the way that I talk, I'm sort of redirected. It's like, oh, you're supposed to be downstairs. I mean, I was telling this story the other day. I was in a Sydney arts venue that shall remain nameless because this is shameful, like a couple of months ago. And I walked in with my, you know, big hair and my hoop earrings and, I was there to see, you know, some highbrow entertainment mm-hmm. and somebody literally came up to me and asked me if I was lost, if I was in the <laughs> wrong building because I, I think I was because it was the only person there who wasn't wearing a grey pashmina. And it's things like that all the time. Like I've been telling this story a lot about I was in a restaurant in Brisbane with my lawyer last year and uh, a woman asked me if I'd hang her coat and close the door and I did it because, you know, I'm not ashamed to do that. But at the same time I was like... Yeah, like my voice, my accent, the way that I present myself, you know, I'm still very much in that 
I will always be a bogan. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how many degrees I collect. <laughs> it doesn't matter how fancy my literary references are and my fancy schmancy education. It just doesn't matter. Like, yeah. whereas and most of my life I've had absolutely no money. Like, I haven't had a dollar and yet I get to participate in these sort of extraordinary cultural spaces mm. because of the notion of Australian like opportunity because th- yeah. those doors haven't been completely shut and somehow I managed to run through them at various points in my life. Mm. Whereas, you know, you can be exceptionally middle class and have had the posh private school education and the totally well-meaning bourgeois inner city parents and, you know, and yet be earning nothing and be a barista but still mm. be incredibly middle class you can be ruling class in this country and sort of this self-appointed aristocratic you know sort of born to rule type Mm. and have lost all your money or be disgraced or Mm. to be considered disgusting you know like there are these really interesting intersections that go on in this country without the sort of politeness or, or 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 traditions that obscure their reality in other countries and we all mm. sort of rub up against one another a, a lot more i think yeah. in australia and even though we're like, oh yeah you know the great egalitarian country we fundamentally know that's not true and that mm. sort of the sort of satirical barbs leveled at one another within that constantly churning class status wealth pyramid i find really interesting and that's really what is at the heart of the play well that's kind of what I wanted to ask you, actually, because, you know, you have written in all of these various sort of forms, you know, as a critic, as a podcaster and TV and novel and stage. What is it that, you know, a, a play like Fall in Love or the stage does that the other kind of forms don't? Because you've, you know, obviously written a lot about, yeah, or, or spoken a lot about um, or critiquing social society and politics and those sort of things what can you do on the stage that you can't do in those other places uh well in the in the theater you can speculate and you can Mm. have fun quite honestly i mean the sort of big turning point that came in my theatrical career was as a result of of the opportunity of writing commentary and journalism so i had been in london for 10 years i did eventually get a job back in australia and got out of got out of the bar and got away from the mm-hmm. snow and came back to Australia to be literary manager at the Malt House, which was an, an extraordinary opportunity and just and mm. so different, like such a different theatre ethos and such a different set of theatre aesthetics to what I'd become accustomed to in Britain. And I was, you know, involved in the, the daily life of the theatre, the programming, the literary mm. development, the kind of work that gets done in that particular theatre and, at the same time, my father was diagnosed with cancer and my father was dying and I just was, I was really in the wrong place. Like I was sort of dealing with coming home, which was supposed to be my big return to Australia and um, and then my father, who was who I was incredibly close to, was dying and I just, I just wasn't in the right place anymore. Mm. I was in the right country but not doing the right thing. At, at Malthouse, it was just suddenly all wrong and I had things to go through. And I, my father died. I was on bereavement leave. I was in Sydney with my mother who was heartbroken. And I got this phone call from my friend Karen saying that 
a show that she used to do in Melbourne called Cherchez La Femme, which was like Q&A but just for feminists. And, you know, you'd have five feminists on stage debating sport or class mm. or hats or fashion or whatever. She was going to be doing it in Sydney and would I be on the panel? I'd done the show for her a million times in Melbourne. I was like, okay, I'm not really in a good place. I'm still grieving. And she was like, get out of the house. You have got to get out of the house. And I remember then I was like Noreen Young and Nakia Louie and all these crazy, wonderful sort of larger-than-life women who were participating and it was really what I needed it was such a shot in the arm and we had such a raucous night and I got a phone call from the Guardian like the next day it must have been on a Friday and I got a phone call on a Monday or something and they were like look we're setting up in Australia and we saw you in the show and we think you're really interesting and we'd love to talk to you like really are you sure you know kind of thinking originally I thought it was Karen pranking me and I met with them and they said, what do you like talking about? I said, I really like talking about class. Mm. That's, you know, I have this weird experience of being a bogan who does middle class <laughs> things and all the sort of weird ironies and contradictions that come with that. And that's what I write about. And they were like, great, awesome. When can you file your oh, first column? Wow. So I had the first opinion column at all in Guardian Australia, which is kind of amazing, about being a bogan. And um, I suddenly found myself really the meat that commentary was sort of where I needed to be like it just seemed mm. the right direction for me to go in and I left Malthouse and I sort of devoted myself to this media career but what started to happen was a real it was sort of a real really important developmentally important formal separation where having the opportunity of writing commentary meant that I really understood what my job was in the theatre and my job in the theatre was to entertain mm. people, which I know sounds crazy, but you go to drama school and it's like, oh, theatre changes the world and theatre is a crucible yeah. of, you know, culture and, you know, politics flows downstream from culture and culture forms and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, actually, I'm funny <laughs> and I I need to laugh and if I can make other people laugh, that is probably a really mm. good thing. And just sort of going through, I don't need to solve the problems of the world on the stage. I have a column, I can do that, and on the stage I can give people relief mm. from the problems of the world. And my, and other people are brilliant political playwrights and raise important issues and all of those things, and obviously I'm very animated by my class analysis and my political critique of prevailing capitalist society and the rest of it is all there. It doesn't go away. But having that, having a platform to go, let's talk about tax policy, and having another platform to go, let's do an adaptation of a Spanish play and see what that says about contemporary Australian society and just see where it lands, that has that has made me a better journalist and a better playwright at the same time. And I'm really, I'm really grateful to The Guardian for that opportunity. And obviously over the years that I've been there, you know, I've I've developed as a commentator and I've been able to, you know, understand the form of commentary a lot more and that kind of constant having to churn out so many columns and and be answerable mm. and accountable for everything I, I say has made me much more considered as a as a technician really for the theatre mm. as well. And it's enabled me to write other things. I've been writing television for mm. the past year, uh, which was never something I really thought that I would do. But when you click into that that formal relationship with text and constantly evaluating what does this means of deliver, delivery do to the words and the characters and story and the plot and the message and the insight and what is appropriate. It's just actually given me a much 
broader and more sophisticated arsenal. I mean, I never thought I would write a non-fiction mm. book and QAnon and on obviously came out of my experience during COVID yeah. and going crazy and watching everybody else go crazy and going, <laughs> hmm, maybe there's a pattern to this craziness and just sort of being able to click into that different sort of formal relationship, you know, nonfiction as opposed to writing stage farces, as opposed to writing 800-word columns, as opposed yeah. to writing one hour of narrative drama, as opposed to like it's it's – I'm so grateful that I just get to think about writing mm. all the time. I'm also mm. exhausted. I got everything I ever wanted and I can barely move. <laughs> Regina, can I can I say? I, I'm so tired. I was less tired when I was waitressing until two o'clock in the morning. So swings yeah, and roundabouts. Did I mention I forgot to have children? I did forget uh, to have children. So. Well, last question because I've only got like about three three more minutes left. But you said like, you know, and this gives you an opportunity to write what what – it is about society or contemporary society today, this play. What is it saying about society today? Very quickly. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's saying that wealth, class and status aren't the same thing. It's saying that our ambitions make fools of us all. Uh, it's a satire of of our contemporary vanities and manners and it obviously satires our fixation on on wealth as a means of personal development. So mm. all of those things get churned up. But really what the play is about is about having a good time. Mm. And if I can help you have a good time by throwing figures at you that are recognisable for you to laugh at, I will do that. If it means making obscene jokes, I will also do that. A complex series of puns, I know some people like them, I've thrown them in. <laughs> and uh, just uh, like actually a whole bunch of gags about Mexican food. I think I was quite mm. hungry during that particular draft. <laughs> Sounds like fun and laughing at ourselves, I suppose. Yeah, there's a, there's a big mirror. And I was saying this the other day, like controversially, I think everyone should have a good time in the theatre, literally everyone. I even think rich people should have a good time in the theatre. I think they should be uncomfortable, but I think they should have a good time. Oh, Van Batten, thank you so much. It sounds like a hoot. Thank you, Regina. Van Batten and A Fall in Love opens this week at Sydney Theatre Company. 